You're listening to Feral Attraction, hosted by Metrico and Vera the Science Collie. On this week's show, we open with a discussion on how self-control is just you empathizing with your future self. Our main topic is on commitment versus autonomy. We discuss each and how to balance them in a relationship. We close with a question on bisexuality and the complications of attraction and dating. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Fear of the Science Collie. So, first off, Happy New Year, everybody. Um, We're officially in 2017. Welcome to Season 2 of Feral Attraction. It's all sorts of exciting. You know, it's we're hoping that your New Year celebration was... You know, full of laughter and love and all of that good stuff. You got to see some fireworks, maybe. Or if you were me, you were stuck at work while everybody else was able to do that. The goddamn jackasses. Yeah, we've got a lot of exciting things coming to you in Season 2 of Feral Attraction. We actually recently had our business meeting where we discussed some of the exciting stuff we have in store. So look forward to some visual updates to the site and some new content and some exciting new projects in 2017. Yeah, and as always, thank you for your continued support, everybody. You know, when we started this a year ago, I think we actually recorded episode one right around the same date in 2016. Um, You know, it it was definitely one of those situations where we were a little bit, you know, well, let's hope this works out. Here we are 52 episodes later going, oh, well, I guess it worked. So, (laughs) you know, thank you again for your support. And I hope that we can have your continued support throughout the new year. We wanted to open the you know, today's uh, podcast with a discussion on an article that we read in The Atlantic. And it was a discussion about self-control, which we thought was a little bit appropriate for this week's topic of commitment versus autonomy. And the 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 article gives the point that self-control is just empathy with your future self. Now, there's a lot of scientific research in this about how a scientist is able to temporarily disable what's known as the right temporoparietal I can't pronounce it temporoparietal junction or the RTPJ um I swear I can word good um and what you can actually do if you press your right index finger to the top of your right ear where it meets your head and then you move it about an inch up and back about an inch or about two or three centimeters if you're listening in anywhere but the United States. Um, you're pointing at your RT, your RTPJ. Um, this is the center of the brain that's linked to empathy and selflessness. Um, the the researcher in all of these, um, Suschek, um, was able to use magnetic fields to briefly shut it down. And he was able to show that it's also involved in self-control. So... Basically, what's happening is that we knew that this was, you know, an area that was linked to empathy. And so, of course, you know, from a previous podcast, empathy depends, you know, on your ability to overcome your own perspective, to appreciate someone else's and to step into their shoes, so on and so forth. Self-control is basically the same skill, except that those other shoes belong to your future self. Which, which is kind of a removed and hypothetical entity who might as well be a different person. Um, self-control is kind of like a temporal selflessness, um, which is what the article says. It's present you 
taking a hit to help out future you. So it could be, let's say you're me and you've been working on not eating so much junk food. There are times where I just really goddamn want like a bowl of ice cream because I've had, I deserve it. Like I'm beautiful. I'm sassy. I'm sexy. I've had a bad day. And goddamn it. I'm going to have that Ben and Jerry's. Now, self-control is me going, okay, I really want this, but I'm not going to because future me is going to really hate that I did this. So it's a temporary kind of, okay, we're going to not do this thing that I really want to do in exchange for knowing that whether it's two minutes, two days, two years, two, you know, however long in the future, you're going to be like, well, I'm really glad that I did that. So... We talk a lot about empathy and we talk about empathizing with other people, but it's just as important to empathize with yourself because people often kind of make the mistake of looking outward so much that they forget that they have to kind of step back into their own shoes. So the article then goes on and it makes the point that impulsivity and selfishness are two halves of the same coin, you know. Because the opposites will be restraint and empathy. Because everything is now tied together. So, people that show dark traits like psychopathy, sociopathy, and sadism. And and by sadism, we're not talking about like BDSM. We're talking about people that genuinely um, and unethically like to hurt other people. Um, They score low on empathy, but high on impulsivity. So, impulsivity correlates more with people who slip among, you know, recovering addicts, people who, you know, are trying to abstain from something, but they're just not able to, whatever that might be. Whereas, empathy correlates with longer bouts of people being able to abstain from whatever it is they're trying to avoid. Drugs, booze, if you're a sex addict, whatever it might be. Again, sex addicts, I don't think, are a real thing, Um, but that's a topic for another day. So the thing is, is that self-control, empathy, these are qualities that represent success and failure at escaping your own egocentricism and that you then begin to understand that the lives of others, you know, even those that wear, you know, even those of your own self, because every, you know, whenever you live, you know, five minutes from now, you're pretty much a different person. It's kind of a weird thing because your experiences will forever change you. So by having self-control, by having empathy for yourself, you're able to empathize with who you want to become in the future. And we get a lot of questions about things like this, where people are feel lost. They feel as if they don't have, you know, any kind of goals or ambitions. And the issue is, is that they're you're unwilling to look into your own self and you're willing to empathize with who you want to become. People often have an idea, oh, well, I want to become a great chef, but I have no idea how to get started. Well, you have to empathize with your future self and you have to realize that if you want to succeed at doing something like that, then you can't spend 20 hours a day playing League of Legends. You have to put the you know computer controller down, but you got to go and like, Take some culinary courses, start, you know, going up the ranks of the kitchen. There are a lot of things that you have to do. And self-control is a major part of that. So if you lack self-control, a good way to kind of develop that is to develop empathy for other people. And once you're able to empathize with other people, you'll begin to empathize with yourself. So we thought that this was an interesting kind of topic. And again, we'll link the article 
in the show notes because it's a it's a really great article. It's in the Atlantic, so you don't have to pay for it or anything because the Atlantic is good like that. Um, <laughs> and it's also nicely peer reviewed, which apparently I saw I saw a tweet I think from Donald Trump or one of his surrogates where he was talking about peer review being like a red flag and how peer review wasn't needed for Einstein and look at what Einstein was able to do. To which I say bullshit. Um, Einstein grew up in a system that doesn't require peer review. And when he came over to the United States, he rebelled against it because it was difficult. The thing is, is that just because things are difficult doesn't mean that they're incorrect. There's a right way and there's an easy way, but they often aren't the same way. So just because you're able to succeed without doing things the right way, doesn't mean that you yourself are doing things correctly. Just a thought. Um, you know, you can take that to the bank. Um, but when we talk about relationships, a big question we get will be on commitment versus autonomy. And the idea of self-control and really self-denial comes up a lot because people in relationships want to experience that deep intimacy. But at the same time, they're afraid of becoming collective. They're afraid of, you know, being a Starfleet officer suddenly becoming part of the Borg. How can you <laughs> kind of equate the two or how can you balance the two? So we decided that for the first topic for the new year, we're going to talk about commitment and autonomy because, you know, with the, being a new year, it's important to take a look at things in your own life. And one of those that you have to take a look at is going to be your relationship. So yeah, relationships are something where the commitment level and the autonomy level are going to vary in every single relationship. Every relationship is unique on these two axes. And also every person is unique in terms of their needs and wants, in terms of what they look for, in terms of levels of commitment and levels of autonomy within relationships. So, you know, the other point we have to make, obviously, is as a podcast that caters to non-traditional relationships, the whole idea and definition of commitment kind of varies between traditional monogamous closed relationships and non-traditional non-monogamous open polyamorous or dominance and submission BDSM type relationships, right? These terms tend to have subtly different meanings in those contexts. Uh, there's actually a really neat article written by Cascade Spring Cook that we're going to link to in the show notes that talks about commitment and gives some examples of relationships that are non-traditional and how commitment functions within those uh, relationships and a series of vignettes. And I think it's actually pretty neat. I linked, I'll link to that in the show notes. But, you know, at the very basic level in monogamy, we often think about commitment being wrapped up with the idea of sexual and emotional exclusivity, as well as commitment to be together for the rest of one's life, right? That's kind of the whole idea of marriage and the idea of two death do us part. And uh, also the idea of, you know, you being the only two people who are going to be intimate in either the emotional or the sexual sense. Very traditional definition of commitment. However, in open and polyamorous relationships, it is possible to be committed without having, uh, without being sexually exclusive, or uh, without being emotionally exclusive, or without uh, being either sexually exclusive or emotionally exclusive, right? So for example, in the case of a uh, an open relationship, you might be uh, emotionally exclusive, meaning you're not allowed to fall in love with anyone else, but you aren't sexually exclusive anymore, right? You still consider yourself to be committed to the person you're in the open relationship with. Conversely, 
you might be in what's often called a semi-open relationship. Perhaps sexual exclusivity is not allowed, but you're actually allowed to date other people and to be romantic with other people, but you're not allowed to actually be physically intimate. That would be an example of a semi-open relationship that is sexually exclusive, but not emotionally exclusive. So you can have a variety of these uh, in different combinations. But the point is, those people will still tell you, yes, I'm committed to my partner. So obviously they do have some type of commitment, right? And then finally, in open and polyamorous uh, relationships, you know, we have to really kind of expand the idea and the concept of what open commitment really is. So it really tends to be something more like the commitment to the emotional well-being and safety and happiness of a partner uh, or other partners if you have more than one partner. So it's less so to the idea of exclusivity, but more so to this idea of emotional well-being and being mutually beneficial to, to each other. The idea that we're going to make sure that we benefit each other more than we harm each other, right? That's, a, that's the often a commitment that people will make in those types of situations. Uh, oftentimes as well, especially in BDSM contexts and some polyamorous contexts, uh, there'll be a commitment towards a document that specifically lays out the terms of a relationship. So you'll have a set of rules or, or boundaries or just people often just call it the relationship terms or the relationship contract. And they'll actually write up a document that spells out exactly what their commitment means. And that's, again, more common in structured relationships, uh, like some structured hierarchical polyamorous relationships and some BDSM relationships. You know, to be fair, there are some monogamous relationships that uh, even marriages that have these kinds of terms that are strictly lined out. Um, most of them tend to be incredibly religious, though, like incredibly orthodox, um, which if you're listening to the show, please let me know, because I think that these types of marriages are absolutely fascinating. But, you know, I live in Brooklyn and I, I'm surrounded by uh, Hasidic Jews who have all of these terms strictly outlined and they are strictly enforced. So it's kind of interesting to see, you know, that this is how things kind of are for them. But um, to be fair, I feel like that could also fall in line with DS in some ways, <laughs> um, as many Orthodox religious marriages tend to. Um, you know, it's it's fairly interesting to me because, you know, especially with DS and polyamory, having these terms laid out can be incredibly helpful. But at the same time... You know, the commitment can often be, you know, when it's laid out, it seems more like a contract and people can lose sight of it being a relationship and instead it becomes kind of like a business. So it's important that you don't necessarily try to equate the two. I know that I use the analogy that a relationship is like a corporation, but don't actually make it a corporation. Don't impose like tardy, like slips and you know, things like that, unless it's fun for you, in which case get on it. Like, ooh. So just make sure that you're still having fun in a relationship uh, if you're going to instate rules and contracts and sign in, sign out, you know, time card punches. <laughs> um, you know, there's another component to all of this as well, um, which is, you know, there in non-traditional relationships, there is a component where you commit to be together for the rest of your partner's lives, which we kind of mentioned with monogamy. And again, right. this is less traditional for non-monogamy, right, Vero? Yeah, for sure. And the idea is that with not, like the non-monogamous relationships, uh, there's often, again, as I mentioned before, hierarchy or different levels of connection within the relationship. So perhaps, uh, for example, there might be a primary partnership in which you do have this idea of uh, commitment to death do us part. 
but that might not be true for, let's say, for example, secondary partners. Maybe you define the primary partner as being the one that you live with, or the primary partner is the one who you share finances with, or the one who you are raising a child with. But perhaps you have secondary partners who are committed to you in certain ways, but don't have a commitment to be with you for life. And so therefore, they aren't financially entangled with you. They aren't participating in child rearing. They aren't living with you, right? So these might be different types of commitment that you can have that coexist at the same time. Uh, and, you know, that can also be true in DS context. We might have, you know, a certain, you know, alpha pup who's committed to you and, and other pups who maybe you just rotate through on a training basis. Maybe you have other pups who you're committed to for a, a two-year contract, but then you actually hand them off to another handler, right? That can be a common arrangement in those types of relationships. So you might even have time-limited commitments in certain DS contexts and in, in, in pup uh, handler play and things of that nature. So, um Go, moving on then to, you know, the idea of uh, commitment to uh, this, the idea of cohabitation too can be a component that is different in these types of relationships, right? So uh, as I just mentioned before, in the context of varying levels of uh, commitment to, to being together for life, you can have a, a commitment that is dependent on financial uh, interdependence. You can have a commitment that is dependent on cohabitation. And these things tend to correlate with higher levels of commitment, as I mentioned before. So if I live with you, I'm more likely to also be interdependent on you financially. So let's say that, you know, we're going to have a shared checking account. We're going to pay bills together. We're going to pay taxes together. We're going to, um, you know, rely on each other during when one of us is sick or one of us is unemployed. We're going to use the other one's income to supplement. We're going to kind of trade off in that way. So that type of uh, financial interdependence and commitment tends to correlate with other types of commitment like cohabitation and child rearing. Uh, but those things don't necessarily have to be present for a relationship to be committed. Yep. Right. You know, it's, you know, there, there's a, you know, more recent trend amongst people who, and it comes from the neo-paganism really, uh, hand fasting, where there's an annual kind of recommitment, an annual reevaluation for uh, couples, and this can even apply to larger groups, where every year they come together and they say, hey, is everything working out? Is everything going fine? Because if not, we can make changes or we can terminate the relationship. And it is possible to have that level of a commitment where it's every year you're kind of renewing it. And also have higher levels of commitments, you know, that, that would go along with cohabitation, financial interdependence, sickness, health, all of that good stuff. So you do see, while the trend is that the more, we'll say, responsibility you have as a unit and that, you know, while we have a mortgage together, we have shared bank accounts together, you have cancer. Like, you know, <laughs> while you do tend to kind of see that trend more with people who are traditionally married or traditionally committed, you are seeing, especially since I'd say 2002, hand fasting has really been kind of coming out of like neo-paganism uh, traditions. And you're seeing it more kind of accepted throughout. Um, and some places it go, it's the ceremony that they actually use for common law marriages or for civil partnerships. Um, I'm seeing it a lot more, especially in uh, Eastern Europe, which is actually kind of cool. Um, so, just because you aren't, you know, in a traditionally committed relationship where you're married or you're, 
you know, in some way, shape or form legally recognized doesn't mean that you can't have these levels of responsibility together. But it is important to recognize that once you have these levels of responsibility, that the commitment level, regardless of the time of renewal that you set, be it one year, two year, five year, 10 year life, you need to be on point with all of that. Because otherwise, it's just going to lead to a whole bunch of shitty, shitty, shit, shit. So, you know, make sure that you're willing to agree to these responsibilities before you get into them. I know it's kind of like a very point blank statement, but you kind of have to. Um, it's it's uh, I've seen so many relationships fail because of that level of because they make the higher level commitment but they can't follow through on the higher level responsibility. Right, right. That's so, a huge point of failure, right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, even moving beyond that, you know, and this is somewhat even prevalent within the furry fandom, um, when we talk about short-term or age difference relationships, intergenerational relationships, the commitment has to be mutually emotional, sexual, focus on spiritual growth rather than to each other. Because, I mean, really... There, There is an inequity. You know, you're not on the same level. There's a difference in maturity. There's a difference in life experience. And so the older individual in the relationship tends to take on that, you know, I, I wouldn't say nurturing, but like the mentorship mentoring. role. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. the mentorship role. Yeah, which I mean, I think that you're, you know, a little bit more into than I am here yeah, in but terms of. It's very true. But the thing is, most mentorship roles are by their very definition time limited affairs, right? And so that's kind of what we're getting at is these types of relationships can uh, certainly work out to be lifelong, but that's That's very much the exception and not the rule, right? So oftentimes people kind of learn about themselves, they grow and change as a person while in these relationships, and then they eventually become a point where they want more autonomy and they go off and find their own relationship and use what they've learned from that first foundational relationship to kind of build their next relationship now that they've really defined what their needs and wants really are. And when you're in your first relationships, you very often uh, don't actually know what your needs and wants are going to end up being. So you figure that out in your first relationship. And these types of intergenerational relationships are often exactly that. But because of that, you have to be aware of the fact that when you're committing to each other, committing to a lifelong connection, it might be you can commit to a lifelong friendship, but committing to a lifelong romantic and sexual connection is probably unrealistic. So it's much more important to commit to, you know, working uh, working together to build this, you know, build this person up and make help them figure out what their needs and wants are and help them grow and mature as a person. And it's less important you know, to commit to the longevity of the relationship. And this is essentially Dan Savage's campsite rule, which is the idea of leaving each other in better condition than you found each other uh, by virtue of being connected to one another. So that's really important in those types of relationships. And those are very common, I feel like, both in the uh, the BDSM community, uh, the LGBT community, and also in the furry community, right? So it's a very common relationship style in our cultures. So we have to be aware of that and keep that in mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, especially within the BDSM community, it is so essential that and this does when we talk about BDSM, we're not even talking about age differences. We're really talking about experience gaps. You know, if you find yourself in a more experienced position, you always want to make sure that you leave the lesser experienced partner that you have better off in the end. Because otherwise, you're going to get more fifty shades of gray. And we all know how that book ends. Um, it's unethical and it's shit. Um, but every mom that takes their kids to soccer in a minivan in America loves the shit out of it. So, you know, it's, it's, you want to make sure that in age difference, you know, relationships, you know, 
you can chalk that up to experience. The more experience that you are than your partner, the more responsible you are for their emotional well-being and their growth in general, because you're going to be one of the people that they reference in the future. You're going to be somebody that they can look at these experiences and say, well, this is what I enjoyed with this person. This is what I didn't enjoy. And you don't want them to not enjoy something or even enjoy something if it's based off of unethical behavior. You don't want to get somebody started down the wrong path. So when it comes to commitment, you're committing less to really the relationship and more to the education for that individual, the experience, the learning, the growing, the sharing, the teaching. And that's really what's essential in these. Um, as Vera said, they do tend to be short-term. So that's just kind of how it is. Just follow the campsite rule. Ask Dan Savage. He's a master on the campsite rule because he wrote it. So, you know, just go straight to the source. But, um, you know, when, when, if we leave short-term relationships for a second and we go back to, you know, longer-term relationships, you know, there is a commitment to weather the storm with somebody. You know, when when you hear traditional wedding vows, you hear, you know, richness and riches and poorness and sickness or in health, good times or bad times until death do us part. And all of these are really essential in a committed relationship, because if you're only with somebody in fair weather and the second that they, you know, God forbid, they get cancer, they lose their job, they lose somebody in their life and they're feeling a little bit depressed, you know. The fact is, is that you have to be with somebody in both aspects. There is a duality to a relationship. There is duality to commitment. You have to be there when the commitment is easy, and you have to be there when the commitment is difficult. If you can't do both parts, then you can't really commit. But you have to be able to be there for your partner. That's part of what commitment is. You are there to support your partner in difficult times in life. You use it to work past problems and you use it to work past conflicts and you don't let it get in the way. You don't give up when things get tough or hard work or compromise is involved. If you're just kind of leaving everything to, well, it'll resolve itself or, well, he'll be okay. I just, you know, I couldn't handle it anymore. To be fair, your own emotional boundaries and your own emotional bandwidth is definitely important to consider, especially in very difficult circumstances. But you're not alone in a relationship. You have your partner to rely on as well. Both of you made a commitment. Both of you have to support each other, even if one person is struggling. So be there to support your partner. And don't allow for you to get in your, you know, the way of making sure that you honor your commitments. It's kind of a weird circumstance, to be quite honest. But, like, even beyond, you know, sickness and health and all of that, relationships are always going to have bumps in the road. They're always going to have, you're always going to make mistakes. You're always going to fuck up in some way. Let's be real. We're all human. Or some of us are human. Some of us aren't. You know, it's, you are who you are. How about that? <laughs> to all my Therian and Otherkin folks out there. Um, <laughs> you are who you are. <laughs> And everybody makes mistakes. And it's important that you make, as part of that commitment, the right to forgive mistakes compassionately and to empathize with your partner. And part of that is you have to commit to forgiving yourself. You might fuck up, but if your partner forgives you, it's not the end of the road. It's not the end of the journey with your partner. They understand that you made a mistake. They understand 
that you realize you made a mistake and they understand you're going to work towards not making that mistake again. Allow yourself to forgive yourself because if you don't, you hang on to those mistakes and those bad times continue being bad. Don't allow for that. Make the commitment to work past problems and conflicts and to not give up. Don't get in your own way and don't allow the mistakes that are forgiven to get in the way. That being said, make sure that you maintain your emotional boundaries. If your partner makes a big fuck up that you can't forgive, well, that's a different conversation you've got to have. But ideally, there's going to be elements of compromise and negotiation and forgiveness within every relationship. When we, you know, talk about commitment, you know, it's kind of a difficult thing because commitment in general tends to be associated with intimacy. And the greater the level of commitment that you have, the higher the level of trust and intimacy that tends to be associated. It, it's 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 a weird... One breeds the other, right? Yeah, exactly. You I know. feel like uh, <laughs> if you can think about it, it's kind of like the universe expanding, right? It's like uh, the universe expands to make space for space, right? So when you have that trust and intimacy, suddenly the universe can kind of expand into that new chasm and you can kind of build those things out. It kind of creates the volume that you need to expand uh, intimacy and trust. So, uh, you know, it's really important then that you think about um, how trust and intimacy, if you're trying to build those things, maybe what you're actually, you know, maybe, maybe instead of thinking about, you know, how can I make that happen? You actually have to work a step backwards and think, you know, how can I build how committed we feel to each other at, you know, this um, stage in our relationship. So, you know, do you have anything else to say about the intimacy? Issue yes. There? Oh yeah. So the whole thing is that when you maintain trust and intimacy, like, the more trust that you have in a relationship, the more committed you are in a relationship, the more intimate you become in a relationship. These things tend to trend together. And the thing is, is that if you maintain your trust and intimacy and you lower your commitment levels, it's often a struggle for closed relationships that are in the process of opening up. Like... Let's say you are in a closed monogamous relationship and you want to open the relationship up. It becomes difficult for some people who are used to the levels of commitment to see that that can be somewhat trending downward. However, trust and intimacy need to stay at number, you know, top 10. You know, they have to be up there, the number one, the big deal. So it's difficult for people sometimes to equate, you know, to make that transition. Right. And I think, you know, the issue there is, again, we're going to talk about this a bit more later on in the podcast, but there's an, sometimes a difficulty in comprehending that you can maintain commitment without maintaining the exclusivity, right? And giving up in that exclusivity can make uh, trust and those sorts of things very difficult because for a lot of people, trust comes from the comfort of knowing that they're exclusive and their partner doesn't have other options. Once you open the door to your partner having other options, that trust level and that intimacy level can be can go down. And so you have to be kind of guard against that. Think about, you know, other ways to demonstrate your commitment to each other that don't depend on exclusivity because that exclusivity component is being removed. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, it's, 
this is something where a lot of people will remain monogamous. And again, this is uh, it's a valid choice where people have issues with maintaining that trust and commitment in an, in an open environment. They need it to be kind of closed off, and that's completely fine. It's maybe you've been burned before. Maybe you're just not sure if you can hold that. And I mean, obviously, the standard answer is, well, you won't know until you try. But really, you, the, the, the worst kind of environment to try it in is a live one. Like, let me tell you, from software development, from engineering, you don't want to push something to live without testing it first. Like, no, you don't want to use somebody else to beta test. <laughs> so, you know, you want to make sure that you try to maintain the levels of trust and intimacy within your relationship, regardless of its open nature, its closed nature, whether you're in a polyamorous relationship, you know, whatever your relationship style is, as long as trust and intimacy are a portion, that tends to be an indicator for how healthy the relationship is. That being said, when we talk about commitment, commitment itself is great. Commitment itself is kind of the catalyst for developing trust and intimacy. Because the more that you're there, the more trust you have in a partner, the more intimate you are with a partner. But too much commitment can become pathological. You know, commitment in the extreme becomes codependency. When you are so committed to your partner that you are afraid to do anything without them, where everything you do involves them, where you stop again being a Starfleet officer and become part of the Borg. You are part of a collective. You are not part of a relationship at that point, And you are entirely codependent upon each other. Now, codependency in some areas tends to be okay. You do end up being codependent when it comes to financial issues, when it comes to legal obligations. Let's say that you take out a mortgage. You are codependent in that because chances are both of your names are on the account. So both of you are responsible. You have created the burden and you are codependent in maintaining that burden. However, when you have high levels of commitment without any layer of individuality, the relationship stops being intimate. Because intimacy requires for there to be individuals. So all of this is really where autonomy comes in. Because autonomy, it's the ability to act as a sole individual without needing to consult the opinions of others. It's freedom from control and influence. Um, when we talk about autonomy in general, it's often kind of used to infer that you are acting in your own best interest. Um, it's autonomy itself is kind of, you know, it's one of the areas in a relationship where people tend to struggle because of the commitment levels. And it's something where people try their best to kind of regain. And it's something that you want to keep in mind when you enter into a relationship, what ideal levels of independence you would like and how to balance that with the levels of commitment. Um, you know, when you enter into a relationship, automatically you lose some degree of autonomy. That's just kind of how it is because you're no longer making decisions for yourself. You're no longer making decisions for what you would like to do. You have to consult somebody first. So automatically, some intimacy, some some autonomy is lost. You know, it could be, oh, I really want to go to the movies. Oh, wait, but I have a boyfriend now, so I gotta ask her. Oh, I'm now kind I of have to have, bring her with me. You have to share my popcorn and pass it back and forth. What's this garbage? Yeah, or you know, I really want to go see, you know, I don't know, 
Bloodsuckers from Mars 3 and Disney Real Vision or whatever. Like, you really want to go see, like, a horror movie. And your girlfriend is like, um, actually, I'd rather go see Die Hard. Um, Sounds like my kind of girlfriend. But that being said... (laughs) It is the best Christmas movie ever, apparently. Thank you, everybody, who informed me of that. I have to say, Grimmy Coyote actually had us watch True Romance for Christmas. And that was actually a much better choice. I... What did I did I watch a movie? I mean, I, I typically watch The Nightmare Before Christmas um, every year around this time. Um, I don't think I watched anything like specifically. Oh no 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 no! I watched. Oh god, what's the Mystery Science Theater? Um, I forget the title of it, but I watched a Mystery Science Theater that's like Santa Claus themed. It's pretty fun. Um, I watched it with people actually in our Telegram chat. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but. You know, when you enter into that relationship, you know, some degree of autonomy is lost. And once the relationship becomes committed, you tend to lose a little bit more autonomy. What began first is, you know, I just kind of want to stay home and play Dota, but my girlfriend wants me to go on a date with her, you know, suddenly becomes, I really want to go home and relax, but alas, my girlfriend is there and we need to like do, like, do the dishes or something. So like... As the relationship becomes more and more committed, the chances are the more autonomy is going to be lost. This is not always the case. Um, There are certain relationship styles that we touched on earlier, like open, like entirely open polyamorous relationships and relationships that involve relationship anarchists. You know, these tend to be slightly less committed and more autonomous. Right. Well, the, whole, like, con- the, the whole conceit of relationship anarchy is essentially that all, literally all commitments are negotiated and like nothing's assumed. There's no assumed level of commitment. Where often in other relationship styles, it's kind of like object-oriented programming where you inherit some of the properties of your class, right? When you assign someone to being in a monogamous relationship, you inherit a lot of monogamous relationship properties. Like, you know, we, we will agree on what movies we're going to see together or we're not going to fuck other people. <laughs> Those are kind of inherited, right? But in a relationship anarchy, you don't have any of that. Everything is negotiated. You might have a relationship where you hang out and you cuddle really aggressively and you you know, in your underwear and you do all sorts of other things, but you never have sex. And that's my negotiation. That's just what the relationship is, right? So maybe you're really committed to doing that once a week, but that's your relationship is you just, you know, have really aggressive underwear snuggles, you know? People have negotiated all kinds of different types of relationships and relationship anarchy. Sometimes they don't even have any sexual connection. They just have companion relationships where they just love hanging out with each other and they have really deep emotional investment in each other as basically romantic friends who are never sexual or physical with each other. That can also be negotiated, and that can be a committed relationship with no sex at all. Uh, That's also very common in asexual uh, individuals' relationships, right? So it's very important to keep in mind that not every relationship is even going to be dependent on commitment uh, in the traditional sense, and that's okay. You don't have to have commitment at all to have a successful relationship. We, we're not saying that commitment is some kind of goal that needs to be, like, you know, you have to get maxed out in your stats, right, in order to be a successful person in a successful relationship. It's a an axis that relationships exist on, but it is not, does not uh, measure goodness of the relationship, right? You know, it's, it's, I, would, I would clarify to say that, you know, a lot of people equate commitment to, you know, uh, all areas of life, committed to you sexually, committed to you financially, that sort of thing. You know, there. when it comes to like asexuality, for example, a lot of people will say, well, because you're asexual, you're aromantic, you can never be in a relationship. But that's not really the case. Plenty of asexual people are able to make the commitment to be in a relationship. But as part of that 
negotiation to being in a relationship. They're just like, I rarely want to have sex. So like, if you're in this to like come inside of me, that's just never going to happen really. Like maybe once in a blue moon and I'm sorry about it, but that's not really how it's going to be, but we can totally jerk off next to each other. Like we can jerk each other off. Like when it comes to relationships, because every relationship is going to be different. The commitment levels are going to differ for everybody. And as such, the autonomy levels are going to vary. And autonomy is going to mean different things to different people based off of that, based off of the fact that everybody is a unique little snowflake based off of the fact that each relationship is going to be different. It's important that you understand when you enter into a relationship, what the autonomy level means for each person. You're already discussing what the commitment is going to mean for them. What are they committing to? Ask the other side of the coin. Flip the coin over and say, okay, well, we agree to the following commitments. What are areas that you want to remain autonomous in? And again, autonomous can mean different things. What aspects are important to them? Is it them maintaining privacy? Or is it them wanting to be more secretive? Are they not wanting to disclose everything? Do they not want you peeking over their shoulder every time they open their iMessage or Telegram or, I don't know, Snapchat? You know, do they want to have financial self-determination? Do they not want to mingle your finances? Do they want to be able to buy shit without having to ask for it? Do they want to have relationship self-determination? In some cases, maybe if you're in an open relationship, they don't want to run things by you. Maybe they want to say, you know, well, okay, well, hey, but, you know, hey, how was your day? Oh, my day was fine. I went to work, you know, work was fine. Oh, yeah. And then afterwards, I blew my coworker. I hope you don't mind. Some people <laughs> want to have that in their life. Sure. And to them, that's what autonomy means. The ability to make sexual decisions and relationship decisions without having to consult their pre-existing partner or partners. And while that tends to kind of will say, trend on more of the relationship anarchy side. That is what people want. Again, relationship anarchy tends to be a little bit more autonomous. Um, there's also the idea of initiative, which, you know, maybe some people want to make decisions in their life. It's not a and d thing, don't worry. Like, I thought it was for a second, and I'm like, roll for initiative? Like, you have to do that yourself anyway. But... <laughs> You know, when it comes to initiative in somebody's life, it can be very difficult for them being in a committed partnership to really start things because, you know, let's say they really want to take up, I don't know, underwater basket weaving, but their partner is like, no, we have this other thing that we have to do first. It can be difficult for them to kind of get started on that. Uh, Vero? Any yeah. So felt like it, it, that can also work out for like uh, sexual initiative as well, right? So maybe there's an actually a sense of, I want to feel like I can initiate with you more. That comes up often in DS relationships where maybe subs uh, don't feel like they're allowed to initiate or the dom feels like they're obligated to initiate all the time. And this is, it becomes burdensome. And so there are different levels of, you know, who's going to be initiating sexually that can come up. It can also be related to initiative in terms of initiating new relationships with new partners. Maybe one partner would like to feel like they have the authority to bring in a new partner or the other partner feels like they want that to be a mutual decision or they want to have some veto power in that. So there can be a sense of, am I allowed to approach new people? Am I allowed to approach you for sex? You know, do, to what extent are things a joint decision and to what extent am I allowed to do these things autonomously, right? 
I also want to go back to the privacy versus secrecy idea for just a second, too, and kind mm -hmm. of spell out how I think of those two things, too. I think in most relationships, secrecy is really toxic. And what I mean by that is it's totally okay for you to desire and want privacy in your relationship, but it is not really okay to desire secrecy. The difference being privacy is your partner not knowing about things until they come up or until they have relevance within the context of your relationship. So privacy in a relationship that's very high on trust can work just fine. Uh, in fact, I have a lot of privacy from, let's say, for example, my a lot of my mates, Rhythm and Koji, for example, I have a lot of privacy from them simply because they don't really care what I do as long as it doesn't affect them. So they don't really ask about everything that I do, and I don't necessarily tell them unless it's relevant to them because that's what they want from me, and that's totally fine. Secrecy, though, is different. Secrecy is intentionally keeping things from your partners, and that is something that I think becomes very toxic very quickly in most relationships. If you are keeping secrets from your partners, that actually really drives a wedge between you that damages intimacy and damages trust because you're basically committing eyes of omission that very quickly will turn into overt lies if your partner ever asks you a question that touches on something you've omitted, right? So if you are keeping from your partner that you slept with someone who they might not like because you decide it's not worth it to bring it up to them, and then your partner asks you, what were you doing that weekend? You've now gone from a, a live omission to an overt lie because you're not going to have to make something up that explains where you were that day, right? So you kind of end up going down this trail of lying and deceit. And once you get comfortable lying to your partner and deceiving them, uh, it can be very easy to do that in other inappropriate contexts. So you don't want to set that precedent and make yourself comfortable with telling your partner lies. And you don't want to be keeping secrets from your partner because that damages intimacy. If you are with someone in a highly committed relationship, uh, and then I'm talking about high commitment relationships here. You can obviously keep secrets if you're having a one night stand. No one needs to know, you know, everything about you on the first night of your commit connection. Or if you're having like a three week FWB romp in Paris or something, like go for it. Don't have to tell them everything, maybe. But if you're having a committed long term relationship, there does come a point where your partner has basically the right to know you for you and to see all of your dark spots. And keeping secrets from them is actually going to damage the intimacy and the trust in that relationship over time. And it could actually destabilize the relationship to the point of it ending, which is which very often happens because the level of deceit and betrayal builds up over time. Eventually, the partner discovers it. And even though they might be able to forgive the sexual infidelity that may have happened or whatever else the actual issue might have been, what they can't forgive is all the deceit and lying and knowing that they've been lied to and misled for such a long period of time. That can really be deal-breaking for a lot of people. And it's why actually the true reason why a lot of relationships end, not necessarily the fact that cheating happened per se, but the fact that cheating was covered up. That's what a lot of people really can't get over, right? It's the breach of trust. It's the breach of being transparent and letting your partner see you for, for you. And hey, I fucked up and slept with my coworker and being honest with your partner and letting them sort it out and not deciding for them that they don't need to know that, right? It's that level of trust and that level of openness and honesty that people really want. And they're you know, serious long-term committed relationships where you're, you, know, you are cohabitating, you are sharing finances, maybe you are sharing child rearing, uh, all of those types of things. So right. you privacy versus secrecy is a huge deal. And I, I think that that's kind of, sorry, I'm soapboxing in that a little bit, but I think it's really important to distinguish those two things. And I think if you want autonomy, the type of thing that you're really looking for when you're wanting autonomy is privacy. If what you're craving is secrecy, then I question your commitment to sparkle motion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I question your commitment to being in a long-term committed relationship with another person because that means you've got some trust issues that you probably need to work out first, right? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, and it even goes beyond that. It, it, it's not even trusting your partner. It's trusting yourself. You know, when you try to keep secrets from a partner, when you try to, when you make the determination that they don't need to know because you're afraid of them judging you or them breaking up with you, you're not trusting yourself to be vulnerable. You're not trusting yourself to really have that level of intimacy. Autonomy is great. Don't get me wrong. I think autonomy is essential in a relationship, and it's something that has to be negotiated and understood. Different relationships will have different levels of autonomy, but one thing that is virtually universal is that there is going to be some level of vulnerability. Now, when people hear vulnerability, of course, it they think of like a turtle that's on its back on its shell, and it's like, oh shit, I'm going to die. In a relationship, that's not how it has to be. When you're vulnerable with your partner, you allow for them to see your mistakes. You allow for them to see, you know, maybe you have some skeletons in your closet. Maybe you came in with a 12, you know, set of matching luggage, you know, provided to you, you know, free of courtesy thanks to your upbringing. You know, it doesn't matter where your vulnerabilities come from. It doesn't matter where your insecurities come from. You don't get to keep those secrets in high committed relationships. Because those will destroy the relationship. You are planting C4 along the fault lines of a relationship. And you're just waiting for it to explode. And the thing is, is that your partner doesn't even know that that's going to be the case. Your partner has no clue. And when it explodes, it explodes in their face. Secrets are dangerous in high committed relationships. Of course, if it's something like a birthday present... Like, I think that's <laughs> yeah, a that's fine, different. that's a yeah. fine secret. I'm not talking about like, you know, I'm keeping this surprise a secret from you. If it's like a bad surprise, maybe you don't want it to be a surprise. You know, like I fucked your sister at our wedding. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> you know, you know, we, we, we make, we make the statement, you know, borrowed from, you know, Franklin Vo that, you know, you need to move in the direction of greatest courage. We make the statement that the most difficult thing is the thing that you have to say. And that goes with the negative. That goes with the terrible. There are some things that are uncomfortable to talk about. And believe me, my life is full of uncomfortable moments thanks to my stupidity and falling flat on my face in front of people. But it's important to talk about those with your partner because part of a highly committed relationship is building each other up. And it's impossible to build the relationship if you're holding back. You can give all of the effort. You can do all of the motions. You can go through the motions of a highly committed relationship. But if you're holding information back, if you are sabotaging the relationship and making the decision for your partner that they don't need to know, then you are destroying the relationship. And it doesn't matter if it's the first time you fucked up, if it's the second time you fucked up, if it's the 20th time you fucked up. If your partner has forgiven you, then it's evident that they they might have an issue with what they're with whatever you're doing, but they still want to be with you. And a lot of secrecy comes from the fact that you are afraid of your partner seeing you as you are or how you perceive yourself to be. Everybody's imperfect. Everybody has flaws, imperfections. Part of a highly committed relationship is accepting all of those. When we talk about intimacy, intimacy is not accepting the positive 
and rejecting the negative. It's about taking both of them. It's about accepting all of it. And together, you and your partner or your partners or whatever you want to call the people in your life that you're intimate with, deciding how to walk together. And if you don't have that conversation, if you don't reveal these secrets that you're holding on, your partner is going to make missteps and you're going to make missteps and your partner is going to, in some cases, do things that upset you. But unless you tell them why you're upset, they're, they're going to feel guilty and ashamed that they have hurt you in some mysterious way. Highly committed relationships don't allow for you to hold things back. And unfortunately for some people, that stands in a stark contrast to the level of autonomy that they want. So it's important that you understand what autonomy is to you and you find a partner who is willing to work with you with that level of autonomy. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to get partners that feel baited and switched. They feel like they agreed for a relationship with somebody. They asked you, you know, I've bared my soul. Do you have anything to bear, you know, to me, you know? They've given you access to all of their insecurities, all of their failures, all of their fears and hopes and dreams, all of the things that make them vulnerable. And you're just kind of like, oh, okay, that's cool. Thanks for that. Like, do you want to, you know, get fries with that? Like, you can't be blasé about this sort of thing. If you have a partner that is making the drive to be fully committed to you, and you're not willing to go to that level, it is your responsibility as an autonomous individual who wants to maintain your autonomy to tell them. It is your responsibility to say, I'm not sure I can go where you want to be quite yet. It is and that's, a little your- bit of a, that's a little bit of a sneak preview of uh, an advice column that I wrote this week, actually. Oh, hey. <laughs> Which was on the topic of uh, someone who's dating someone and didn't have feelings for that person and was unsure whether they should commit to that person and initiate a sexual connection because mm. they didn't want to lead the person on. And that's exactly the situation you're describing potentially, right? Where one right. person wants to deepen the commitment and the other person's like, eh, I like to fuck you, but I'm not really sure if I want a commitment. So you have to make sure that you're not insinuating a commitment that you're not actually willing to keep, right? Yeah, exactly. You need to make sure that if you are in a position where one party is making commitment and you're not ready for it, if you have not pre-disclosed that you want something that's basically no strings attached, you kind of need to go back to step one. You need to determine what level of autonomy you want, what level of commitment you want, and then go from there. That being said, once you enter into a relationship that has both components of commitment and autonomy, both of you need to discuss how to balance the two. Relationships are about neg- It's a balancing act, to be quite honest. I mean, criminy. It, it can be kind of complicated, but you know, you need to make sure that you have that conversation before you fully get into it. Right. And, you know, this idea of balancing commitment and autonomy is not just something you do before you enter a relationship one time. It's a continuous process you're going to have to work through over the course of your relationship through which all the twists and turns you might take with a long-term partner or a series of partners, depending on how your relationship progresses, right? And the essential first step to this before you ever even have a conversation is essentially having a conversation with yourself. You need to be extremely and painfully honest to yourself 
about your own needs and wants. And this is a lot harder than it sounds like because people are extremely adept at lying to themselves in terms of telling themselves that they want what society tells them they're supposed to want. And it's very easy to lie to yourself about this issue in particular and tell yourself that you want a really high commitment, committed relationship like a marriage or, you know, 2.4 kids and a white picket fence, because that's kind of the American dream. It's what we're told we're supposed to want. It's what heterosexual, heteronormative culture tells us we're supposed to have. And because society and it's what romance stories tell us we're supposed to strive for, right? So because of this, and because society essentially tells you it's what you're supposed to want, it's very easy to become fixated on commitment as being kind of the ultimate end goal of every relationship. And that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. You need to be honest with yourself about whether you really do want commitment. Commitment comes with a lot of perks, and it's it's great. It feels amazing to be committed to someone, but it also comes with a lot of responsibilities and a lot of restrictions, because generally speaking, very high commitment does come with some loss of autonomy in certain areas. And so there's some trade-offs, right? So that's on one side. On the other side, there's an issue that might resonate a bit more with people who are in, in non-traditional relationships in the, in the furry community and in the LGBT community. There's actually a tendency in our culture uh, to become actually kind of a commitment phobic or afraid of commitment or to avoid commitment because it sounds like a drag, right? Uh, when you're young and you feel invincible and you don't really like think about ever having any problems with your health or anything like that, it doesn't really feel important to have a partner. So speaking as someone who's maybe slightly older and has been around the, uh, the fandom a bit longer, I'm not quite a gray muzzle yet, but I'm in my late 20s now, not just in my early 20s. I think it's important to remember the benefits of having a long-term partner. And, you know, there are some major benefits to commitment that you shouldn't necessarily shy away from. And especially as we're going to we kind of we talk about on this episode, it's okay and possible to have commitment without losing a lot of the things that makes commitment a drag for a lot of people. You can have a committed relationship and still have tons of sex with other people, for example. So, you know, if that's your major concern, which if you're in your early 20s, I can't blame you. Sex is fun. But, you know, there's a way to have commitment and still have that. So don't be afraid of commitment because you feel like it's just going to be a ball and chain, right? And also remember all the virtues of commitment. Uh, it's, it's very easy to forget its value until, for example, you're home alone in bed at night and you feel lonely. Commitment is kind of a guard against loneliness in a lot of cases. Um, it, you know, maybe you're sick in the hospital and you really wish you had somebody who could visit you. Well, if you're married to somebody, they can. You can have somebody who's at your bedside and is able to make your medical decisions for you. And someone you know and trust and who knows you on an intimate level and truly loves you making really important decisions for you and you're maybe incapacitated, right? Maybe you find yourself suddenly uh, unemployed and you're having financial difficulty. And if you had a committed partner who you lived with, who has had a very good income, perhaps you'd be able to kind of rely on them a little bit while you're getting yourself back on your feet. That's something you can't really do if you're single, right? So there's lots of different benefits to cohabitation, to sharing finances, to having someone to go to sleep with at night, to having someone who knows all your dark secrets and still loves you, and someone who can basically comfort you and be there for you emotionally at a moment's notice. I mean, those are things a lot of people in, in marriages take for granted. But if you've been single for too long, you might actually not even realize what's available to you until you actually get into one of those situations. So if you've never been in a committed relationship, I don't. I will urge you not to count it out just because you're afraid of losing sex, because you can have both. I mean, I'm a strong, independent panda who don't need no man. And, like, uh, as I've discussed, I've had some, like, health issues um, in my life. And every time I've encountered a health issue, I've, for whatever reason, been alone. I've been single. You know, I don't have a family. So it's kind of up to me to make these important decisions. So 
for me, part of, you know, being in a relationship with me sometimes is high. Yes, I'm like 95% healthy, but like sometimes that 5% flares up and it becomes kind of a shitty thing. You don't really know how shitty it is to be fully autonomous when you wake up after being in a coma after a botched surgery attempt and nobody has visited you and nobody has cared about anything. Poor Panda. I mean, it's great having autonomy, but it's also great having other people in your life. I understand the hedgehog's dilemma where the closer you get to people, the more likely you are to hurt each other. I understand that that's a possibility, but at the same time, you don't want to die alone. You want to have people that will fight for you and stand for you. If you fall down, you want to have somebody there that is, you know, willing to, you know, give you a hand back up. And for a lot of people, that's their friends. That's their family. They have a support structure. That's awesome. For other people though, you want to have somebody that's there in bed with you when you fall asleep. And let's be honest, sometimes you don't want your friends to be in bed with you because they have stinky feet and they don't brush their teeth before they go to bed and you can't really yell at them, but you can yell at a partner and you can tell them to brush their goddamn teeth before they get in bed and goddamn it, take a shower because you smell like ass. I mean, there's a degree of parenting that kind of comes with being a partner too, right? And that's actually a benefit of being committed is someone who you're not afraid of is like the ultimate reality check, right? Right. Yeah. Like, dude, you've got shit on your face. What's wrong with you? Get that shit cleaned up. You know, you smell like ass, take a shower. That's something only a committed partner can really tell you, right? Right. And that's, that's the thing. Like you want to make sure that the balance is there to where your partner is not afraid to tell you something, but at the same time, they don't feel obligated to tell you, you know? The ultimate harmony in a relationship is where you can be completely honest with your partner without fear of them blowing up. That being said, if you fuck up and you make a really big fuck up, like, hi, honey, um, how was your day? Oh, it was great. I went to work. I, you know, went to the post office. Oh, and I fucked a guy behind the 7-Eleven. If you fuck up like that and it's not within your relationship terms, yeah, expect a little bit of a blow up. But at the same time, you should feel that you're able to approach your partner with your mistakes and your fuck ups without, you know, like fear of them being like, oh, well, you fucked up like that. I'm going to fuck up like this. And then it becomes like this weird, like, situation where you guys are just trying to fuck each other over. That can be fun in, like, small doses, like with Nerf guns. But, like, in terms of, like, actual relationship dynamics, it's not really that healthy. You want to have somebody there that you can feel free to bear your soul, to bear your mind, to bear your heart. Because otherwise, you know, it gets a little bit wonky. And, you know, speaking again as an independent, strong panda who don't need no man, um, you know, it is nice to have somebody there. Like, don't get me wrong. Vera and I, we're close. And like, like we're, we're, we're not close in that we've had sex yet. Um, yeah. I have touched your dick. Yeah, you have. That's true. And I have we touched did, we, yours. We did get that out of the way. We're like, you know what? We just have to make this happen. We're close enough friends. We have to have touched penises. Yeah. So. But but to be fair, we didn't touch each other. Like, we didn't touch balls to each other. So like, No, no. What, it wasn't gay. It was it just purely, purely friendship. We were just shaking each other's, you know, hands yeah, in like, another way, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like, the thing is, is that, like, we haven't had sex yet. And, you know, but the thing is, is that, like... Even though he, you know, Vera, you and I are really close at the same time, you're not necessarily somebody that, and like, this is meant with no tea, no shade, but like, if I were to be in the hospital, you're not as free to come and give me a hand because you're not, you're not legally allowed to be there after a certain time. (laughs) So like, that's one part of it. And 
honestly, you don't want to have a relationship with somebody just so you can like die and have somebody by your bedside, but you want to have somebody there that you know and trust will be able to make the best decisions for you when you're not able to. If you're having health issues, if you need help finding a job, if you're struggling with mental anxiety or issues, somebody who is there to take care of you when you can't take care of yourself. And in exchange, you offer that same benefit to your partner. You take care of them when they fall. Relationships are just about mutual support. And if you want to remain too autonomous, if you want to remain so independent that you don't need no man, then you're not going to really be able to find a commitment of that level. Relationship anarchy is great, but again, it's like two ships that cross in the night. It is a no-strings-attached relationship in most regards. And well, to push back on that a little bit, th- there's a component of relationship anarchy that does allow you to negotiate commitment, right? That's the, that's the thing that people tend to forget about relationship anarchy. It's like you can't have a relationship anarchy connection that does have actually high commitment. It, does, it sounds weird, but it totally exists. And I can give an example, which is my relationship with Rhythm. Uh, he's a relationship anarchist, and we have a very committed relationship, actually. But we negotiate literally everything because we're both autistic like that. So it works out really well. But like the thing is, without negotiation, those commitments aren't there. So I, I don't like to say that – I think you misspoke slightly in saying that relationship anarchy is by like definition an NSA-type relationship. I think instead what you should say is that the default assumptions are that – so with relationship anarchy, the default assumptions are lack of commitment. Would that, do you think that might be a little bit fairer? Mm, I, I don't know. It's, it's to be quite honest, like for me personally, like relationship- there are two styles of relationship anarchy, I think. And if you go back and read the like, founding document, it really emphasizes this idea of negotiated commitment. I think in the furry fandom, there's a tendency to use the word differently. And maybe we're actually having a, what does that mean for you moment metrico where we're actually using the term slightly differently. I, I'll agree to that. I think we're using the word a little bit differently. And I think maybe there should be different words altogether because <laughs> the like, fandom no, version is not the same. Yeah, exactly. I'm being quite honest because like relationship anarchy within the furry fandom, which is, you know, kind of the context that I'm framing this in is, you know, Hey, I like you and this, I just met you and this is crazy, but we're at Anthrocon. So fuck me, baby. Like, you know, it seems like the idea of saying, I love you to get in someone's pants, but not actually following through. Yeah, Like I love you. Let me suck your dick, but I'm not going to like care about, you know, anything else beyond that. Like, Oh, I I didn't commit to anything. Sorry about it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do see what you're saying. That does happen a lot, but I think that's relationship anarchy done like at its least ethically. You know what I mean? Yeah, but like to be fair, like a lot of people that claim to be relationship anarchists, let's be honest here for a second. I'm embracing that. Yeah, I get get that. I get that. You know, whereas your style of relationship anarchy is, while it's closer to the closer to the platonic form of of relationship anarchy, you know, the way it was laid laid out originally, right? Yeah, it's 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 the other form is like communism and you're more socialist. Like, (laughs) um, you know, it's it's. That's kind of, you know, the way that I view it. Because um, I do identify as being a partial relationship anarchist. It's very close to how I practice polyamory, right? Is, is that so, like a partial fursuit? Like... Kind of, yeah. I feel like I, I kind of just partial relationship anarchy sometimes. I don't really, <laughs> I don't wear the body part. Fair enough. But I mean, you know, with relationship anarchy... It reads as... a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to know, like, you're getting good air circulation. Oh, I get do great you... circulation, Metrico. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um... You know, the, the, the thing is, is that, like, 
you know, relationship anarchy as practiced unethically, you know, doesn't allow for that, you know, level of connection. So it's important to know what you want. And it's important to know that in order to have somebody there for you in sickness and in health, you need to make that initial commitment. Too much autonomy poisons the relationship. And that's why it's important that you communicate your needs on both communication and autonomy to your partner. And you have to negotiate and compromise where possible. Again, you kind of want to ensure that this is a continuous conversation. Your needs change, your positions change, your perspectives change, your circumstances change. One thing that I will point out in a relationship, especially when it comes to people that struggle with autonomy, is it's always best to ask instead of tell. So instead of saying, you know, oh, honey, you know, the dishes need cleaning. You might want to be like, oh, honey, can you clean the dishes? It's a little bit of like a minor change. But the first one, it doesn't really give the option to say yes or no. It's just a statement. It's, hey, go do the dishes, you fat fuck. Whereas like the other one is, hey, can you go do the dishes, you fat fuck? Like, it's a slight difference, but putting it in the form of a question and maybe taking out the fat fuck part, unless you're dating me, in which case, um, like, we'll talk. Um, it's by allowing the your partner and by allowing yourself to have the opportunity to say no, it allows for you to remain autonomous or at least maintain the perception of autonomy. It could even be something that you really enjoy. Could be maybe you are a model train enthusiast and your partner could be like, Hey honey, I'm going to be doing this. So you should go play with your model trains or you should go paint, whatever, go do whatever. Because you're being kind of told that you're going to be doing this. You can kind of resent the actual activity and you can lose the joy that you have for it because, well, I didn't want to do this. I wanted to do something else, even though, you know, you love doing it. So ask questions. And if your partner asks you like, Hey, instead of telling me to do things, could you ask me, like, I'll still probably do them, but like, I would like to be given the option to say no, because we're not in a DS relationship and I'm your equal. And I don't know why you're bossing me around. Like all of these terms, you know, bossing, you know, all of that, it comes from the idea of autonomy. And a lot of people, they feel like they lose autonomy at work. You know, they're beholden to a boss, they're beholden to deadlines and timelines, and they have no control over it. They produce and it's never good enough. There's always critiques and criticism and complaints. Some people, when they feel like they lose autonomy in their work life, they expect it or even demand it within their home life. So it's important that you have a discussion about that because by overloading your partner too much, they can view you less as a partner and more as a boss. And nobody really wants to date their boss. That's just bad business. Can be kind of hot in certain uh art that i've seen and like fur affinity and stuff but yeah it doesn't really work out so well usually i said date not fuck <laughs> big difference <laughs> so you know communicate your needs when it comes to a relationship when it comes to commitment and autonomy and again autonomy levels they don't need to necessarily be correlated with commitment levels in certain circumstances so for, you know, it can be asymmetrical. If you increase your autonomy, it doesn't mean that you're decreasing your level of commitment. It's not like a scale where the more of one you have, the less of the other you have. Thing is, is that in order for the commitment level to stay high and the autonomy level to also raise to a higher point, 
you have to have a shit ton of trust in the relationship. It has to be super high. And this, you know, goes back to us talking about open relationships. Like if you want to be in a fully committed relationship that is also open, the trust level has to be at a 10. That also requires a higher autonomy level. You're not fully committed. It's a little bit open, but you still come home to each other at the end of the night and you still ask for permission and you still fully disclose everything. You're allowed some level of autonomy, a higher level of autonomy than if you were strictly monogamous or if you were polyfidelous. So if you're going to enter into that kind of a situation, that kind of a position, that kind of a rodeo, you need to make sure that those levels are still high. It's not always going to be a trade-off. But again, I would recommend highly that you work on commitment, trust, and intimacy before you work on autonomy. Now, some people will say that all of this happens, you know, you develop that trust at the beginning stages of a relationship. No, honey, that's either going to be NRE, that's going to be some level maybe of limerence, perhaps, that just happened to evolve into a relationship. You have to develop that over time. It's not just a one-month period of fucking each other brainless and, hey, you know, we've gained the power of trust. <laughs> that's not how it works, Scott Pilgrim. It's all about <laughs> you know self-respect and respect for the relationship and respect for your partner and respect for the truth. If you can't have both levels, then that's a problem. So don't open your relationship unless you trust your partner wholly. And that can Ooh, only... Don't do that. Bad idea. Yeah, really bad idea. And... That's really like a lot of that. That's an area that I see a lot of failure and I'm not going yeah, to lie. Because when you open the relationship without the trust, you might intellectually convince yourself that you're okay with it. But then when your partner is actually out with that other person and that trust disappears, you're going to find yourself having moments of complete and utter panic. And it's going to frankly traumatize you. And it's going to turn you off to the, even the idea of open relationships because you frankly just attempted it at a time when you weren't ready to. So yeah, don't open the relationship until you really trust. If like, Basically ask yourself, do I trust my partner to come back at the end of the night loving me as much as they did when they left? If you can't answer that question enthusiastically, yes, you should not be opening your relationship. Period. You need to be able to say, do I trust my partner to come back loving me as much as they do now or more after they've had whatever it is they're having with this other person? Do I trust them to come back and do I trust them to love me to the same extent? If that is not happening, no, don't open. Period. Yeah, shut it down. Like, business is closed. Like, under renovations, you're renovating the level of trust that you have in a relationship. And until you can reestablish that, nah, like, no go. Do not pass go. Do not go on free parking. Right. And if trust gets, if you build trust and you get to the point where, hey, I do trust my partner to that level, then yeah, go for it. Open the relationship and you're going to have a way better experience. You probably have to feel compersionate towards your partner rather than feeling, you know, Blech. and well, all that jealousy and negativity, right? Well, I mean, you can't really have compersion without trust, right? Like, no, you really can't. Yeah. Because compersion is kind of predicated on the idea that you're happy, your partner is happy, because no damage is being done to anyone. And you can't verify that no damage is being done without the trust component, right? So compersion really does depend on trust. Yeah. So, like, really, like, I feel like on a certain level, like, commitment versus, versus wow, I became Barbara Walters for a second <laughs> there again. Sorry, everybody. Commitment versus autonomy really kind of becomes, like, trust versus intimacy. And they're not always going to be opposing factors. Because if you have more autonomy, then your partner has to trust you more. And if you have more commitment, then you have more intimacy. That's kind of how it is. All of these, you know, they seem to be opposing values, but they're really not. It, it, it's They're all interconnected. 
And so if you want to have more autonomy, that means that your partner really kind of has to start feeling a little bit more compersion for you. And unless there's that level of trust, unless there's that level of intimacy, unless there's that level of mutually created, you know, positivity, that foundation for the relationship, that communication level has to be on point. Unless all of these factors are in play, it's very difficult for you to be fully autonomous or mostly autonomous within a relationship. Like, that's just kind of how it is. You know, autonomy and commitment, they will always be asymmetrical within a relationship. Well, not always, but they can be. There, I very rarely will see a 50-50, like, ratio of, like, commitment and autonomy. In fact, I think that's really hard to quantify. But generally speaking, there will be cases where one partner has more autonomy and the other partner has more, you know, is more committed and it could be due to several factors. It could be due to trust levels. It could be due to the fact that one partner has recently made a mistake. So they're kind of like brought back to the house in order to kind of reestablish the levels of trust. It could be you're in a DS relationship. It could be due to a number of factors, but sometimes that's just kind of how it is. Maybe one partner needs to have more autonomy and the other partner doesn't really need it so much. Um, again, go back to our fairness versus equality episode, because we kind of discussed that, you know, just because one partner is more autonomous doesn't mean that both partners or all partners have to be more autonomous. You want to make that balance in the relationship in an area that is, you know, comfortable for everybody that works for the relationship. Um, so the thing is, is that everybody has their own independent trust level. Not everybody needs everything communicated to them, as we discussed. Not everybody needs everything fully disclosed to them. Trust levels, boundaries, things like that are going to vary. So autonomy and commitment levels can vary to match. As long as everybody is aware of this, as long as everybody consents to this, and the relationship as it stands, it's all about everybody being comfortable with the way that things are. And it has to be true comfort. You can't bully your way to being more autonomous. Shit don't work. You can't bully your partner to be like, oh, well, I want to have this. You have it, so I want it. It doesn't work like that. You have to be able to negotiate. And every, you, you. One of the common assumptions that I see in a relationship, is, especially in open relationships where one partner is open and um, the agreement is that they don't have to pre-disclose their partners and the other partner is you know, in the position where they do have to predisclose their partners. It could be that one partner has trust issues or maybe, you know, they're a little bit more hesitant and they want to have the ability to veto certain potential partners for, you know, their partner to play with. Just because one partner has the ability to not predisclose doesn't mean that by the transitive properties of being in a relationship with them, that you can just magically transubstantiate your part of the understanding to mirror theirs. You have to make sure that any changes in the relationship are negotiated and agreed on and understood. You can't just assume that, oh, well, I'm sure this is what he would want for me. That's called cheating. It's a violation of the relationship contract. It's a violation of the understanding of the relationship. It's a violation of your partner's trust, and it is a violation of their boundaries that they have established within the context of the relationship. You don't get to just arbitrarily make yourself more autonomous. There is no unilateral decisions in a relationship in terms of autonomy, making yourself more autonomous than you are at that moment. Shit don't happen like that. 
so don't pretend like it does. Always communicate. Always have that understanding because you do have a level of commitment regardless of your relationship style. Part of that commitment is you have to discuss these things with your partner. That's just how it is. All of this, though, is fluid. Autonomy, commitment, relationships, everything's fluid. It all boils down to everything being a constant state of flux. And everything varies with circumstances. So it could be that at the beginning part of the relationship, when there's that deep emotional connection where you're just boning like rabbits and it's like awesome, you're experiencing that full NRE and you're just letting it wash over your body. Hmm. Commitment is going to be easy and autonomy doesn't feel that important because you're getting to know each other. You're enjoying being in each other's company. So why would you want to be autonomous, right? Well, it's not even just a matter of wanting. It's a matter of the way limerence affects the body physiologically. The way your body responds when you're in a state of NRE or a state of, of limerence, which is basically the really initial strong romantic attraction uh, and romantic and sexual attraction to another person, you don't commitment and autonomy aren't really issues because you're so laser focused on that person you essentially have tunnel vision no one else exists for you essentially during that time it's a form of shared narcissism where you and that person are basically the only things that exist and so a lot of people don't like being around people who are you know in love with someone in that early stage of love because they feel like they've lost their friend because their friend just kind of forgot they existed and is 100 focused on this person they're in love with right so because of that in those early stages of, of connection it can be really hard to remember that you do need some autonomy if that's what you usually need. And this is something that people who are inexperienced with relationships often don't realize and it might not come until you've been through a few relationships that you realize you have some need for autonomy because when you're in that early stage, if you commit to that person too soon and you commit while you're still experiencing NRE, you will not be able to um, like be, you, won't, you won't know what your true need for autonomy are because you're still in that stage of NRE. So you're, you're perfectly happy to sign, a, sign everything away at that point because you're like, well, I, don't, I just love you. I, just, I can't think of anyone that ever want to do anything with ever again. And it's like, okay, that's cool. But are you going to feel that way in six months or 18 months when the NRE wears off? Maybe not. Maybe then you start feeling other urges, right? So you want to make sure you give yourself that leeway and that um, kind of runway to know what your needs are going to be down the line and you don't want to overcommit in terms of commitment and in terms of uh, sacrificing autonomy too soon before you know what your true needs in that relationship are going to be. And to inform what those true needs are going to be, that's going to come from, as we talked about earlier, self-reflection and also reflecting on your past relationships and why those might have failed. Was it because you started resenting your partner for being controlling? Was it because you resented your partner for being uh, you know, not letting you have sex with other people? Was it because you felt guilty about desires you were having that your partner wasn't okay with? What is the reason why those relationships had issues? If you have identified with a lot of those types of things, it might be that you're actually looking for a higher autonomy type of relationship or no relationship at all. But that's something that you have to figure out based on your previous experiences, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, that's why for some people, monogamy is the only thing that works for them because they realize that they are in a position where they need to have more commitment than autonomy in both themselves and their partner. For some people, that's why open relationships work. You know, it's all a balance between everything. So understanding and reflecting on your past relationships, your past experiences, and recognizing your failures. Again, this goes back to understanding the fact that you are an imperfect you and that Life is just a journey to correct those imperfections that will actually never be perfected. 
you know, you have to make sure that you recognize all of that, especially at the beginning of a relationship. You know, NRE is great. It is powerful. You just want to see every last inch of your partner's body. You want to touch it with your tongue, maybe. I don't know. Go nuts! But at the same time, make sure that you recognize that, you know, this is now, and a relationship is about the future, and sex is great in the present. But you can only really have sex if you're a normal person and not my co-host, like maybe one hour of every day. And you got to deal with the rest of the 23 hours. <clears throat> so, a subtle dig at my sexual... Uh... It's not a dig. It's a compliment. Jesus okay. Christ, you can go all day. You're like the the fucking Energizer bunny. Like, oh, God damn, Jesus well, Christ. Well, are known for their agility and their energy. Yeah, fucking hell. The thing is, is that, you know, once NRE goes away, you got to make sure that the relationship is still kind of there. NRE can mask a lot of underlying issues. So it's important that even though you are enjoying each other's company, you are discussing what kind of relationship you would like. Because generally speaking, you know, a lot of relationships end after NRE fades because they realize, oh shit, this is actually a real thing. So it's important to kind of disclose, you know, your level of commitment during that period. That way your partner is like, okay, well, we've been through NRE and it's been great. And like, it's been a wonderful three months. And I, you know, I'm wondering whenever you're going to pop the question and you're like, ah, oh, that's not what I was in for. Like summer loving, having a blast. Like, you know, you, you can't John Travolta your way out of this bull, you know, like, God damn, you're going to make yeah. some Australian girl cry. Like poor Sandy. Um, Another thing that kind of comes up in terms of like fluidity is going to be time constraints. So, you know, in my example, I'm a busy fucker. So it's important for me to have a higher level of autonomy. Some people may not be as busy, so maybe they can afford to be a little bit more committed. You know, that's just kind of how it is. But these things change over time. Maybe next week Vera's like, sorry, Metrico, but um, the time has come for me to move on without you on the podcast. And then I'm going to have a shit ton of time. Oh my god, I'll be bathing in time if he does that. Please don't do that, Vero. Um, but like time constraints can be a big sticking issue for a lot of people. Um, I see this all the time. Right, and this also comes up a lot, as we've talked about in our intergenerational uh, relationship episode, in relationships between people who maybe are older and living, you know, working in a professional setting. And if they have a partner who's in college, the college partner might have tons of free time and the professional might not have any. And so you might have this, a real mismatch in terms of, you know, like the, the college age partner saying, hey, I want to spend all this time with you. I want, I want text from you every day. I want you to say this. I want you to do that. And then it's not like that's not possible or doable for the professional work, worker who's a little bit older. Right. So you have to be careful about, you know, being honest about saying, hey, you know, I work professionally 60 hours a week. So realistically, we're only going to be able to have one day a week and we're not, not going to be able to text you every day between this hour and this hour. And you negotiate those things so they know how much autonomy you're going to need despite dint of your professional life and they know how much time that they can expect it to deal with on their own right because someone is someone who actually doesn't want a lot of autonomy and they want a partner who's basically going to guide them and tell them what to do all the time uh maybe they're actually in a ds relationship maybe that person who's working 80 hours a week shouldn't be taking a long distance submissive who craves constant attention right that's probably not a good recipe for success there's an autonomy mismatch there so be careful of those types of things on the other side though uh if you have too much time on your hands that can also be a problem uh, too much time on your hands is also a great song. Go check it out. But you know, it's really an issue, right? Because at, when you have too much time on your hands, you get a little stir crazy. 
you get your need for autonomy can go up. You might get cabin fever. You know, I'm always home. I need to go out. I need to do my own thing. I need to find new people to hang out with. I need, you know, you get, you get these urges. It's like, I got to get the fuck out of here, basically. It's the urge that you experience. And that can make you really ramp up your level of autonomy that you seek because it's like, I've just got too much fucking time on my hands. I don't know what to do with myself. I should probably be meeting new people or whatever, right? So that's kind of, your, your body's actually kind of programmed in to be pro-social and you've got too much free time because it basically means your body thinks, oh, I've got time to go and, you know, expand my social network while I'm waiting for work to happen. So, you know, keep in mind of that kind of biological imperative and don't, don't get misled by that if you're in a committed relationship. Uh, also, you know, just be, be transparent to your partner and be honest about that. That might be an opportunity for negotiating how much autonomy you actually need. Like, hey, I'm, I'm going into summer vacation from school. I'm going to have a lot of free time on my hands. I'd like a lot more autonomy in terms of being able to initiate RPs with people because I'm going to have a lot more time on my hands. And that's something that I like to be able to do without having to get you know a lot of permission first. So I'm just going to want to negotiate that while I'm on summer vacation, maybe I can RP without you know being having to get your permission for that. Or maybe I disclose it to you after the fact instead of before or something like that. That might be something you negotiate with your partner because of a difference in time constraints that's enabling you to have more autonomy or enabling you to fulfill a desire for more autonomy, right? Yeah. And like with that kind of discussion, we'll use the RP, you know, example. It could be, you know, oh, it's like two in the morning and I have nothing going on and I'm on summer vacation and like you're asleep and I don't want to have to wake you up to be like, hi, there's this really cute guy that I want to RP with, but like you're asleep. So I feel like I'm missing out. And that's going to build that resentment levels. So, you know, if there's too much time, Make sure that there's, you know, just have discussions about the levels of autonomy and commitment. Again, you can be committed and also have autonomy. Like it's, it's not, again, some kind of mutually exclusive, you know, kind of ratio. So, you know, another thing, and this actually kind of plays a little bit more of a bit larger role in relationships, the geographic location. So if you're in a long distance relationship, it's difficult to be fully committed and there's a high level of autonomy because let's say that you're a few time zones away. You could be, you know, dating somebody that lives in the middle of Asia and you live in the middle of America and you're not always going to be awake at the same time. So you are going to automatically have the burden of the burden of more autonomy because your partner is not always going to be there for you to run ideas by them, to run permission requests by. So, the commitment level isn't going to be really that large. That being said, it doesn't mean that there's no commitment. You're in a relationship regardless of the distance. And so it's important that you still negotiate all of this in advance. It's important that you say, listen, if I'm given the opportunity to go to a party and you're not awake for me to kind of like run that by, like, I'm probably going to go to that party. And if sex happens, like, how would you feel about that? Frame it in questions. Have that negotiation. And then from there, you can determine where those emotional boundaries are, where the levels of autonomy are going to be, and you will have mostly smooth sailing from that point. Obviously, mistakes will still happen. Long-distance relationships can be difficult to maintain over long periods of time. However, for people that tend to be more autonomous, they tend to find long-distance relationships to be more sustainable over a longer period of time. If you are a person who is a high commitment, high intimacy kind of per, like kind of gal, like I'm sorry, but like long distance relationships may not be sustainable over a year, a two year, three year period. It's important with long distance relationships. If you want them to be more committed, you make plans for them to stop being long distance. 
you know, and we kind of also disclosed this one a little bit earlier, but like DS, you know, Dom sub relationships, they tend to be a little bit more asymmetrical. There's extreme inequality in those in terms of commitment and autonomy, you know, relationships, they are highly committed on both parts in terms of strictness of protocol. But typically speaking, the dom in that is going to be far more autonomous and the sub is going to be not really that autonomous. Maybe like they're able to pee without asking permission. Maybe like the <laughs> levels of autonomy are going to be entirely unequal, but that's what really makes the relationship work. The levels of commitment though, are going to be super high. So, and this can be a big issue in uh, when you get into mixing DS relationships with non-monogamy and we, our book that we had in our raffle poly, uh, power circuits by Raven Caldera really gets into how to make all those things work smoothly because due to that difference in autonomy and difference in um, commitment, Subs can often feel like their doms can kind of become a little bit neglectful or abusive in the fact that they're just taking on new subs and not consulting their existing subs, and that can be a very uncomfy situation. So doms need to be very careful not to abuse their autonomy in that situation, and I think that's something to be aware of. And if you're concerned about that kind of thing, definitely check out Power Circuits, which two of our lucky fans got a chance to read for free. Yeah, um, thank you again, everybody who participated in the raffle. We'll be doing one... Um, a little bit later in this month using a different method. So don't worry about it. Um, we're going to make it to where it's available to everybody internationally. So all of this is fine and dandy. We do want to talk about some of the common problem areas that come with the balance of autonomy and commitment. Um, the first one is going to obviously be the degree of sexual openness. You know, it's a lot of people, especially in open relationships, tend to find that they want to have a larger degree of sexual openness than their partner really wants them to have. It could be maybe they assume that they have it when they don't. Like there are a lot of areas where commitments can kind of be overshadowed by autonomy. And so it's important that you have discussions in your relationship as to the level of openness that everybody has in terms of sexual connections, emotional connections, because for some people, having a close, emotionally connected friend might represent a ding to commitment. It could be, well, why are you going to your friend with all these problems instead of going to me? Like, You want to discuss the level of openness within your relationship on all levels. You want to make sure that everybody feels comfortable with the level of commitment and autonomy that they are granted. And if they don't, then you need to have that negotiation to compromise on the values. Yeah, that there are a few other things that kind of go along with that. There are symbolic actions within any relationship. Um, some of them are a little bit more ceremony, perhaps, but some of them, for some people, are really like sacred and sacrosanct. Um, you know, only we sleep in this bed. If you, if we're in an open relationship. Nobody gets to fuck you in this bed, and I don't get to fuck anybody in this bed. This is our fucking bed. And by that, I mean that literally. We are the only ones that fuck in this bed. If I'm away, you don't bring somebody to come home and they get to sleep in this bed. Absolutely not. The couch. They yeah, sleep on the goddamn right. couch. And if you're going to have sex with them, you can fuck on the goddamn couch. This is our fucking bed. And nobody violates that. Could be maybe you have a special restaurant. Maybe it's the restaurant that you went on for a first date, and it's kind of a special place. You know, maybe, hey, you know, I understand we're in an open relationship, but don't take people to the restaurant. It's our place. It sounds kind of silly, but for a lot of people, it's 
really important. It's these these symbols of a relationship that makes it special. That that reinforces the level of commitment. So I want to be careful there, though, Metrico, because that's something I actually push back on a lot. People often confuse the symbols for the specialness, and they think that if the symbol is broken, the specialness is also broken. I will argue that the relationship is still special, whether or not the symbol has been broken, but it, because otherwise you can get into a position where breaking the symbol means breaking the relationship. And I don't necessarily think that's the best mindset because then it basically is setting up for failure and you're basically setting a trap for yourself by maintaining any of these symbols, right? Let's say the symbol is only we sleep in this bed and you get drunk one night and someone else sleeps in the bed with you. Does that mean you have to break up because you've destroyed the symbol symbolism of your relationship? I would hope not because that seems like a kind of silly reason to break up with your maybe your partner of 15 years, right? It's important to remember that the symbol represents the specialness and that if the symbol is broken through some act of you know, being a mistake or just circumstances that you can go back to honoring the symbol and go back to the specialness of the relationship. Maybe, you know, there's some discussion about why the symbol was violated, but that doesn't have to be the end of the relationship. I would just encourage people not to confuse the specialness with the symbol. The symbol is what it is. It's a symbol. It's not the, it's not the specialness itself, right? See, I'll agree with that to an extent. Like symbols are not horcruxes for a relationship. <laughs> and the more that you break, the less stable the relationship is until finally you're able to kill it. But in the process, you somehow kill yourself and you end up at a train station. Don't worry about it. It'll make sense later. Never did. Um, thing is, is that like over a period of time, you know, your relationship will build more and more uniqueness and the symbols themselves are not what give the uniqueness. They're not what give the relationship spice. It's the actual experience. It's the memories. So you never want to equate a memory to really being something that can be invalidated. If you're having a good time and you had a good time because you were at a restaurant, chances are it wasn't the actual restaurant that made it a good time. It was the act of being with your partner. And you would have had just as good of a time anywhere else. So it's important that you don't make something feel special, whether it's only we can go to this restaurant because this is our special place. I mean, hundreds of other people go to that place. It's not like it's a secret. It's on Seamless. It has a Yelp rating of 4.5. Like... <laughs> it's okay. But there are things that other people do view as symbolic that would be a little bit more difficult, perhaps, to move past. Um, for example, anal or vaginal intercourse. For some people, that is kind of a Rubicon, where once you cross that and somebody else has that, it's difficult for the relationship to feel, like, valid. It could be that that is a very heavy boundary for them. It's okay for you to kiss. It's okay for you to, you know, give oral but there's no actual oral, uh, there's no actual vaginal or anal penetration. If that happens, I, I don't know if I can handle that. Some people do have that as a boundary. Some people do view that as being kind of special. Those tend to be relationships that have a slight degree of openness, but they're not fully open. They're, they're, you know, somewhat monogamish where they sometimes invite a third in to like, Maybe they both people fuck them like they spit roast the third, but the third is never able to fuck either one of them. You know, there are a lot of different, you know, ways that that can play out. But, you know, you want to make sure that you understand 
the level of commitment and the level of autonomy in areas when it comes to sex, especially if your relationship is open. Could be no anal, could be no kissing, could be no oral, could be only we get to go bear with each other. Some of these are based off of trust issues, perhaps, and experiences that they've had in the past. Some of them could be based off of health issues. Maybe your partner has a compromised immune system, and it's less of a symbol, and it's more of like a safety and health concern. Yeah, right, yeah. (laughs) You know, other areas, you know, things that we've discussed, you know, pre-disclosure versus post-disclosure with sexual encounters with new partners. It could be maybe... You're on a camping trip or I don't know, a business trip and you meet somebody and you really click and you're like, okay, it's going to be kind of like this one night stand and maybe we'll meet up later, but my partner's asleep. I'm in Tokyo. He's in England. Fuck. Well, we're going to do this and I'll explain afterward and I'm sure he'll be okay. Make sure you disclose that and, you know, have that discussion about disclosure before you you do that. Yeah, I highly recommend, like, even if you your relationship normally calls for pre-disclosure, it's often a good idea to talk about what the what if situation of what if I'm asleep, what if I'm not reachable, what if I'm on a camping trip and I can't check my messages and you meet somebody and it's like an urgent thing. Do I have to make you pass up that opportunity or are you in that select instance where it's verifiable that I was unreachable? Are you allowed to proceed? Right. The thing is, if you do that, you then have to have to address the situation of and now I have to trust you not to manipulate me by orchestrating it so that I'm not reachable when you initiate a sexual connection, right? Because if your partner suddenly only starts RPing at 4 a.m., <laughs> then you might have to address an abuse of that exception, yeah. right? There should also probably be a time limit on like, hey, this exception can come up like once every three months or something like that. If you if you don't have trust in your partner, if you do have that enough trust to know that they're not going to manipulate you like that, then oh, that's totally cool. But as you, otherwise, you might want to also impose a little time restriction on that one as well, a little cool down, because mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a daily that you don't want to use in every encounter. <laughs> it's a little yeah. OP, you might say. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm just kind of imagining, like, especially like if you live in the same house where like your partner is like, hey, honey, you awake? No? Okay. <laughs> like type fucking like mad at 2.30 in the morning. Like, uh, yikes. Um. So yeah, like make sure you have those discussions, especially if you're traveling away on business, especially if it's in a place where you won't be necessarily reachable, and especially if you know that there is a chance that you might find somebody that you want to get down and frisky with. The area that I see most issues come from is commitment levels versus emotional boundaries. When it comes to autonomy, and we've discussed this a little bit you know, earlier in the show, some people have emotional boundaries that for them are just, it's, it's, they have to remain firm. It's part of their core integrity. Could be, you don't, you want to be monogamous and your partner has, you know, cheats. Could be for you that the discussion is not, okay, well, how can we, you know, rebalance the levels of commitment and autonomy to make sure that both of us are getting what we need? If your emotional boundary is, I need to be strictly monogamous, and you feel like this is something that is not, you know, it's an insurmountable problem, which for the record, I think that you can remain monogamous and you can remain in a relationship even after there is a violation of trust like that. It takes a lot of healing and a lot of communication and a lot of renegotiating and just a lot of working together to maintain the relationship. But if for you, you just you you can't handle it. You shouldn't feel the need to recompromise your commitment levels and the levels of autonomy that your partner has 
if you don't feel that the relationship is sustainable or if the relationship is still valid. So it's important that you don't compromise your own integrity for the sake of a relationship. Now, you can change your integrity, and that's something that happens fluidly and over a period of time. It's something that you do for your own sake. You don't do it for another person. You don't have a circle-shaped integrity, and you find somebody that you really like, but they're shaped like a square, and you're like, well, shit, looks like I'm getting the jigsaw. Like you don't, <laughs> you don't do that for somebody else. You do it for yourself. So you should never feel pressured in the context of your relationship to change your core values strictly to make the other person happy. Relationships are about give and take, and you shouldn't be required to give everything for your partner to be happy. Some relationships just won't work. And it's important to understand that you might like the person and they might like you, but the relationship is going to be a disaster if it continues and it's best to get out while the getting's good. But a lot of right. that- basically you have to make sure that you eventually identify, Hey, you're here on the commitment axis. I'm here. You're here on the autonomy axis and I'm over here. We're not even touching Venn. Like there's no Venn diagram. There's no tangent. Like we're just not anywhere near each other. We're in like a different universe. Like, and that means like, you know, you could like each other a lot. Maybe you work as casual partners. Maybe you work as friends. Maybe you work as, you know, lifelong friends or even as like romantic friends, but you might not work as partners. And that's something that you can figure out. Now, oftentimes people can actually move towards each other on these axes and you can find a compromise in the middle. And in fact, most relationships are that very few people are in the exact same place on these axes. And so you have to work and compromise with each other. And there is a give and take, and there is a lot of negotiation and compromise that'll happen. But if you're so far apart that you can't even think of a dream of compromising in a way that'll make you both satisfied, then you might not be right for each other. And that's something you have to consider, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the whole part is that you want to make sure that the relationship feels fair. And if you find that you're having to do things that are entirely unfair, not unequal, but completely unfair, then you need to stop making changes in the relationship and you need to have that open conversation. You need to have that renegotiation, that full stop, let's talk about the relationship as a whole, as opposed to you want to fuck other people and I don't want to, like, let you do that. Don't compromise your soul for a relationship. That's really what it boils down to. Uh, you know, other areas, you know, things like spending money. Maybe you have completely shared finances, but your partner wants to be able to go out and buy a new Game Boy game without having to get permission and you giving them allowance and they resent you because they feel like a child and it's like, eh, but like they're really not good with money or whatever the case may be. And it can even be a situation where, you know, they just want to be able to buy you a gift. And it's like, hey, you control the finances. I can't even buy you a gift without you knowing. Like, I don't feel like I have any autonomy in this relationship. That can be really... You know, especially with two guys dating, guys often feel their masculinity is kind of wrapped up with their ability to buy things and acquire resources. It's kind of a very alpha male thing. So if you are in a situation where you're depriving someone of that, you have to think about, like, how is this going to affect them psychologically and emotionally, right? So maybe there's a, a certain credit card that you don't monitor, or maybe there's a separate bank account that they, you know, deposit 10% of their income into or something like that mm -hmm. that gives them the ability to feel some autonomy in that area. And that's something you might be able to negotiate. Another area where this really uh, becomes a huge issue is at fur cons in two different ways that, uh, you know, 
is a big deal. One is sleeping arrangements. So, you know, a lot of times people feel like, hey, if we're together, we're committed, we're, we should be in the same bed every night at the con. So that can just be an issue of like, whose room do you end up with? I end up in at the end of the night. And a lot, some people feel really strongly about that and some don't feel quite as strongly. So that's an issue that can come up. Another has to do with travel. Maybe even the issue of going to fur cons is contentious between the two of you. Maybe one of you is a furry and one of you is not. And so there's an issue of, you know, do I have the autonomy to explore my furry side without you? Or do I have to include you and involve you and bring you along even though you're not into it? And we actually have an earlier advice column that touches on that issue. You might want to go and dig up if you're interested in that topic. But that can be an issue, too, of, you know, the autonomy of being furry versus non-furry and whether you have the autonomy to act uh, act on furry impulses without, you know, maybe bringing along your mundane partner, right? Yeah. And I mean, that even works in other circumstances. Maybe you are really into, I don't know underwater basket weaving and there's an underwater basket weaving convention happening and your partner is like, fuck that. I don't know. I want nothing to do with that. If you have personal interests that you want to indulge in and your partner feels like they need to be involved in every aspect of your life, like if we travel, we travel together. That's a discussion you might want to have because you might feel like you're having part of your life being cut out unfairly when your partner is able to indulge in their fantasy football league right at home. Because make sure that if you have interests that aren't necessarily local, that your partner is willing to allow for you to experience them. And if not, try to find a way to work it out. So overall, commitment, autonomy, intimacy, trust, all these are mutual aspects of a relationship. And these are parts that tend to always be in a state of flux. Overall, and I know that we spoke about this all last year, but don't worry, it's 2017, so we're going to keep doing it. All of these require a high level of communication. So you want to make sure that in everything that you do, in every compromise, in every negotiation, the levels of communication and open discussion are kept at a maximum. Without the ability to do that, it doesn't matter how committed you are, how autonomous you are, the relationship is going to fail. And that's just how it is. Without conversation, without communication, relationships don't get to continue because there's going to be a fuck up. You're not going to be able to work through it. And that's game over. It's important to know that all of these are constantly in flux and it's important to maintain that awareness and that perception and that level of communication. Because if you assume that a relationship is static, you're going to be shocked. I'm proud of that pun. Thank you, Vero. For, um, but no, oh my God, Metrico, go home. I am home. God damn it. Um, in all, in all, you know, seriousness, though, relationships are never going to be static. They are dynamic. They are fluid. They are fluidly dynamic, and. You have to maintain that level of communication because the second that you stop talking and you start assuming is the second that everybody in the relationship feels like an ass. On that note, let's move on to our question. You know, we got a question um, from, from an individual who's bisexual, but they're having issues with both sexes and both attraction emotional attraction and sexual attraction and it's actually a bit of a clusterfuck unfortunately we'll hope to entangle it for them yeah so um 
The questioner goes, I've got a bit of a perplexing question. Uh, I think it has a cause rooted in my past, so here's some backstory. Uh, growing up, I was straight as an arrow. Girls were all I wanted, and around the start of high school, I started to feel slightly differently. Due to the stigma surrounding it, I suppressed these feelings and even resented them. Looking back, you could say I was somewhat homophobic. Well, fast forward, you know, fast forwarding to college, and thanks to the support of some friends, family, and the furry community, I came to finally came to terms with the fact that I was not straight. I knew I wasn't fully gay since I was still attracted to women, so I reasoned that I must just be, vi you know, bisexual. This was all well and good for a year until I finally got to my first gay relationship. After a couple weeks of it, he, we finally took it all the way and I just froze. We had kissed, cuddled, and even done oral before, but when it came time to put the pole in the hole, I simply couldn't do it. I excused myself from the situation and the relationship fell apart after this. The thing is, I was more than able to do the same with women, but men? It just doesn't work. Maybe it was due to the scraps of my homophobic past popping up and triggering my brain to reject it? I've had the same thing happen now a few times, and all I've and I've all but given up on gay physical relationships, specifically anal. Now here comes the perplexing part. Up to this point, I just say that I'm maybe I'm bi leaning towards women, right? Well, when it comes to romantic relationships, I find that I can get much you know I can get into much deeper, more meaningful relationships with men than women. Most of my relationships with women have no problem on the physical level, but I just cannot connect emotionally. This has caused me to accidentally end up being an asshole who only used them for sex. Of course, if I just told them that I was trying to test if anything had changed as far as developing an emotional relationship, that'd only make it worse. So now I've got a bit of a reputation. So I've almost given up on straight emotional relations. So this all puts me in a strange situation where I'm almost heterosexual and homoromantic. I'm not really sure what to do here. It's preventing me from building a lasting relationship because I can't fulfill the full spectrum of what a relationship needs. Any light you can shed or advice you can give would be great. So I'm just going to make a point here, and I know this is kind of not what people want to hear, but you don't have to have anal to be gay. Um, the fact that you can't really get it up when you're having anal doesn't mean that you're harboring deep feelings of homophobia that are so deeply rooted that you're unable to really unearth them and work past them. It could just be you don't like anal. It could just be you don't like anal with dudes. Maybe you like anal with girls, but just with dudes, there's just something. Anal kind of, you know, it's a production. Like, you need... It, it requires planning. Like, you need to get permits. Like... <laughs> You have to get something notarized by your partner to be like, are you good to go? Like, here's like, you know, anal can be a bit of a production and not everybody's really into it. Just because you're good with vaginal intercourse doesn't mean that you're really into anal. And that's fine. You don't need to have anal to be in a fully committed relationship. Your partner might want anal and that's, you know, where they, you might get some toys. You might have fun with other objects other than your dick in their ass. Maybe they want to put their dick in your ass. You know, there are lots of ways that you can work around all of this. The thing is, is that if you equate anal sex as being the culmination of an entire relationship with another dude, you're going to be sorely mistaken. Uh, that's not how it works. Well, and the thing is, statistics don't even bear out that the idea that every you know gay person enjoys anal sex. There's actually a huge proportion mm -hmm. of gay men who never have gay, uh, sorry, never have penetrative sex of the uh, of the anus. Mm -hmm. So they only actually stick to cuddling, massage, you know, rock massage, frottage, mm -hmm. uh, maybe intracural sex, like fucking each other's thighs. Maybe they have oral sex. But you don't have to like anal to be gay. You can be uh, and you can enjoy gay sex and not have 
penetration sex. Mm -hmm. And there are guys out there who are into that. So you don't have to say, oh, I can't be with a man because I can't fuck or I can't get fucked anally. Mm -hmm. There's actually tons of guys who are not into anal. So just advertise yourself that way. Say, you know, I don't do anal, but I'm really, you know, I'm really attracted to you. Let's, you know, let's go roll around and see if it goes somewhere. Maybe we'll have mm -hmm. a relationship. And if your partner is someone who wants anal and you're maybe not necessarily going to be 100% monogamous in your relationship, they can have their anal sex experience with other partners and they can come home to you and just do other things. And that doesn't have to be a restriction either. So there are tons of ways to work around uh, being in a gay relationship with no anal sex that I don't think should preclude you from having gay relationships. I don't, I don't agree with your assertion that you were heterosexual because you clearly enjoy sexual contact with other guys. It's just you don't like anal. So not liking anal does not mean you're not gay. It just means you don't like anal. So, um, or sorry, not bi, not, not male attracted. So you mm -hmm. can be in a relationship with a male, you know, since you were, said you are homoromantic, that fulfills all of your needs sexually and uh, emotionally without putting it in a hole. And if you occasionally want a, a hall pass to maybe go have sex with a woman because you still want to enjoy penetrative sex occasionally, maybe that accommodation is in your relationship where you occasionally go fuck a woman and your mate occasionally goes and fucks uh, a dude or an, a woman or whatever they want to fuck. And mm -hmm. then you guys are both happy. That can be a totally workable arrangement. Yeah. But I mean, like on the other, on the other part of the question is, you know, why are you perhaps struggling to develop emotional connections with women? I mean, there's a lot of things that can go into that. Maybe, you know, a lot of guys, especially if you're bisexual, they f you find it a little bit easier perhaps to build an emotional connection with a member of the same sex because you kind of have the same parts, you kind of have the same motivations in a lot of ways, and there's there's a deeper kind of understanding that can come from that. You know, well, we're both dudes, it's easier for us to talk. With, you know, a lot of perceptions of, you know, especially from the male community when it comes to, to women, is that they are a mystery, they are Pandora's box that must be unlocked using, you know, the three secret symbols, and you must, like, you don't have to Indiana Jones your way into a girl's heart. If you're struggling to develop emotional connections with, with women, then it could just be that at your current stage of development in life and sexuality and all of that, you're just not ready for an emotional connection with a woman. Could just be that you're it's it's your way of telling yourself, like, yo, like I really think she's banging, but I'm not ready to kind of get settled down and kind of live the, you know, 2.4 children, white picket fence, all of that good stuff. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. It just means that you don't enjoy anal with other dudes, and you don't really want to have a full-on relationship with a woman yet. That's it. You know, you don't have to kind of put labels on things. You don't need to be, you know, heterosexual with, you know, homo romance or anything like that. Like, there's, there's no need to ascribe labels to everything. You are a bisexual individual that is still kind of fully realizing what that means for you. It could be that maybe down the line, you enter into a relationship with a woman and you get married, but on the side, you know, both of you fuck dudes or she, like, there are lots of opportunities. There are lots of things that kind of can go into this. The important thing, and this is kind of what I have to tell people, you sound kind of young, sound like you're still in college or just post-college. And what's important to realize is that sex is not really an answer. Sexuality doesn't have an answer because everything is constantly in a state of flux and you know, realization. So there's no real answer that we can give you in terms that will be a final one. The only thing that we can say is enjoy exploring who you are. Be open with people. 
Maybe because you don't want to have relationships with women, you use other sources in order to find girls that want to have sex without the, you know, emotional attachment. Maybe with guys, you find guys that don't want to have anal sex. Plenty of them exist. Anal sex isn't, again, the the pinnacle of homosexuality. So it just sounds like you need to kind of understand what it is that you want. And you're so focused on labeling yourself that you're losing sight of what it is that you actually enjoy. Don't worry about the labels. Worry about where it is that you want to be in life. What is it that you dream about? When you go to sleep, do you picture your life with somebody? Picture how you want that life to be. And that's going to be who you are. Labels only give people an ability to make a determination of who you are. But that's not actually fully accurate, because you're a much more complex, diverse individual than just a heterosexual individual with homoromantic tendencies. You're more than a tagline on Grinder. So make sure that you allow yourself the patience to fully realize who you are on a sexual level, to fully realize your needs in a relationship with both men and women. And don't feel afraid to tell, you know, if you enter into a potential relationship with a woman, don't be afraid to be like, you know, in the past I've had issues with, you know, emotional attachment. You have to allow yourself to be vulnerable with people. Obviously, there are going to be people that are like, um, no, thank you. There are going to be guys who they're like, uh, you don't want to put it in my butt. Uh, have you seen this ass? You can bounce quarters off of it. My God. Squats for days. Life. Hashtag whatever. Yeah, it's definitely something to lead with so you don't get into a situation where you're letting someone down if they've already invested in you, right? Yeah. It's it's something, you know, that you want to make sure that everybody's on the same page with. Relationships are great ways to develop these sorts of things. I don't think that there's deep-rooted homo- homophobia. It's possible, but I don't think that that's going to be what, you know, doesn't allow for you to get it up for other guys because you've mentioned you're able to get it up for other things. So... I really don't think that anal sex is just this, like, boundary. Just You might just think butts are kind of grody, or you don't like male butts, or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be, I mean, and you don't have to figure out why you don't like butts. It doesn't really matter why. You just know that you don't like butts. I mean, there are so. more butts for me to love than. <laughs> but, like, that's the thing. Like, you know, sexuality isn't about finding an answer. It's about finding, really, yourself. And I know that sounds kind of new-agey and shit, but it's true. You You experience sexuality. You don't answer it. It's something that you do. It's not something that you, like, it's not a question on a test. Like, you don't die, and then you're at the gates of heaven, and then St. Peter is like, you know, you are bisexual, but you are somewhat more homoromantic, solve for X. Like, there, there's no algebra equation that's going to kind of solve this issue. All you need to do is just realize that life is a journey and sexuality is a journey and everything is nice and fluid. And you could wake up tomorrow and be like, you know, actually, I think that I could be emotionally connected with a female. Or you might wake up and be like, I totally want to stick my dick in somebody's ass. And like, not anybody's ass, but his ass. By ascribing labels, it becomes difficult to change. Just be you. Just do you. Just have fun being you. Be ethical being you, obviously. But don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to try things. Try everything, as Zootopia tells you. But if you discover you don't like something, don't be. Don't feel bad. Don't feel lesser. Don't feel worse. Don't feel like you're not good enough. Because you are good enough. You are a deeply complex, self-realized individual. And that's all there is. So have fun. Have fun with other people.
And don't worry about what, you know, people might think of you. Plenty of people do things differently. You do you. So on that note, we're going to close out the show. We've been going for two hours. This is a great, long, nice first episode of the year, but we do kind of want to close it out because we're really excited about next week's topic. Um, Today's topic is really important. Next week's topic is a little bit geared more towards the younger generation. We're going to talk about poppy love, how to handle crushes. You know, when you're younger, you have crushes. It seems like every day your hormones are just out of whack. But like, even when you're my age, I get crushes too. And I'm just like, I get all hot and bothered and Twitter pated. How do you handle crushes? How do you know if, if a crush is just a crush or if a crush should lead to a relationship? Or how do you handle when a crush doesn't lead to a relationship? We're going to get into all that next week. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about puppy love. If you have questions about puppy love, about autonomy, commitment, about life, love, liberty, disco, anything, get into touch with us. Our contact page on our website is full of ways. Uh, Ask FM, Curious Cat, Twitter, Telegram. You can do it all anonymously. You can tell us anything you want. You can call us. Our telephone number is on the website, 94940-SHIT. Give us a ring. It'll go to our voicemail. We'll put it on the show. If you ask us questions and you want things to remain anonymous, but you give us your contact information, we're not going to release it. If you give us your name, we're not going to tell anybody who it is. We might make some minor edits if the text is a little bit um, rambly. We might edit for content. We might edit for style because we do post the questions on our show notes and we want everybody to look their best. Some people, English is not your first language, so I'm going to make sure that it looks like it's your first. In other news, we're going to talk about further confusion for a second because Vero's going to be there. Yeah, unfortunately, we weren't able to get a panel in uh, for this con just because I didn't realize I'd be going until fairly short notice because I had a prior engagement previously that ended up not panning out, unfortunately. So I will be at further confusion. There will not be a panel, but if you'd like to come and harass me at some point, and you're one of our higher level uh, patrons, for example, or if you're just a fan and you happen to see me and give me a hug, go for it. I will be at further confusion. So track me down. It'll be fun. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, I won't be there because somebody has to keep the lights on at work and the website and all of that. But um, further confusion is coming up. So if you see Vero, give him a harassment. Um, don't tell him that I'll be doing stuff on the Twitter, though. Like keep him out of the loop. You got that, Vero? Forget, forget, yeah. forget. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. Bippity boppity bop. Um, you know, speaking of Patreon, which you did mention, um, we do have, you know, some shout outs. One of our tiers is uh, for shout outs. Um, Snares has been a longtime patron. He does his own Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash snares for meteor showers. He also has a fur affinity. His username is furious, like the emotion. Um, and he does great commissions. Like, seriously, go check his shit out. Like, commission him become a patron of his he's awesome um zarpolis is also uh one of our patrons who is an author who does sci-fi speculative fiction about parahumans who are kind of like furries you know human animal hybrids that are created relevance their creators and go to seek their future in the stars um give it a check uh, patreon.com slash zarpolis we also have a new patron uh myron um Check out his Twitter. Um, if you enjoy pictures and daily red panda dog ramblings, um, his Twitter is Myron the Fluffy at Myron the Fluffy. And all of his information is in our show notes. Um, if you're not, you know, able to donate to our Patreon, um, then consider giving us a rating on iTunes or on the Google Play Music Store. Give us a review; it helps our visibility. 
Maybe retweet some of our tweets if you find some of them important. Maybe recommend the show to your friends for a year not. Um, it's a new year. It's a new you. Do Have fun. Give us money. Give us retweets. Give us questions. You know, <laughs> whatever you want to give us. If you just want to give us your ears, then we're happy to you know talk into them for a few hours every week. Please don't mail us your ears. No, please don't like that. No, please don't like I ha- I already have too many of them and like I swear to god like if I get any more I'm just going to be just all ears. And that's not Oh my god. Ugh, just does. imagine just imagine the earwax. Ugh. I can't handle well, that. Eerie. It's eerie to think about. I know. <laughs> I threw all of my I threw them all into Lake Erie. How do you think it got its name? Um oh. <laughs> Now, I guess um I've erred on the side of puns there for a second, so I'll get back on subject, which is that's it for this week. Thank you again for listening. It's, again, Happy New Year, everybody. We Really, it is our hope here that your new year is full of laughter and love and all of the good parts of a relationship, and you're able to negotiate past the bad, and you're able to find renewed love and hope for the future. It's going to be a bumpy year for a lot of people internationally. Uh, a lot of changes are happening this year in administration. So keep the hope, keep the faith, keep the love, and we'll keep on keeping our show going. So until next week, I'm Metrico. And I'm Fear of the Science Collie. Be well. Thank you.